This is a No Double Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Andrew Locke, Microsoft MVP, developer at Elevate Direct in the United Kingdom, and author of ASP.NET Core in Action. And he's joining me from Napier in New Zealand. Thank you very much for taking time out of your morning, Andrew. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. So uh, in my day job, I work at uh, Elevate Direct, which is a software as a service company. We do um, machine learning to help employers and agencies with, like, with the recruitment. Uh, I came on board about a year ago to help uh, migrate their services to Elevate my core. Um, and that was based on my blog, which I've been running for a couple of years now, and was actually uh, helped me get the uh, Microsoft MVP as of last year, which was really nice. Uh, recognition to get there. And as you say, I've just, just finished writing the book uh, SP.NET Core in Action, which has taken up a lot of my time recently. So we're recording this on May 26th. And when is the book coming out? Any day now. Anything. <laughs> and available um, in paper, online, multiple? Exactly. From Amazon, from Manning.com. Um, and yeah, as you say, ebook or paper versions. Was it uh, a labor of love like most of these things? It was somewhat, yes. It, um, it took, uh, obviously, a fair amount of time to put together. Um, but it was really interesting as it basically it forced me to really dive into the framework and look at the internals, see how things were working, so I could be sure that I was not telling any lies in the pages. So actually, on that point, um, I imagine it must be easier. You're not, you're, you're a Microsoft MVP, but you are not a Microsoft employee. But because Core is open source, it's a lot easier now to do that deep dive than it would have been, let's say, with framework, I imagine. Oh, far easier. I, I don't know how I would have managed to do a lot of it. There'd have been so much trial and error previously. Um, whereas with this, with it all being open source, you can just dive into the source code, start navigating around. It's so much easier. Did you have some assistance from anyone at Microsoft or someone to, I don't know, guide you or anything like that? No. Not specifically, no. I, I mean, I've, I've reached out and, you know, being open source, you know, I can, I've queried things, raised issues with questions, um, but not not specifically. No, it's just a, a case of just looking through the source code. Yeah. So as people might have guessed, we're going to talk all about ASP.NET Core for this episode. Um, but to start off, why did Microsoft build ASP.NET Core? Everyone was happy with framework. I th- Well, most people were happy with framework. <laughs> Well, I think it was, it's really just been a change in the way web apps have been developed in recent years. Things like the, the advent of Node become very popular. Um, and people, the, the edge towards making smaller services, I don't want to say necessarily microservices, but more small agile services. Um, the way that the that ASP.NET was architected was very much tied to the system.web DLL, which is part of Windows and part of .NET framework, um, and because of Microsoft's, you know, uh, because of their commitment to uh, backwards compatibility, they're basically making changes to system web was very hard. It means they couldn't move very quickly. Meant things start to stagnate, um, and also deploying small services. You're depending on Windows, so um, you're very tied to big VMs. .NET Core was basically a, a attempt to create a cross-platform because there's a lot of developers on Linux these days uh, framework that could be very modular so it could be stream uh, cut right back to only the required modules and uh, yeah to work basically in cloud environments as well 
Do you think this is the beginning of the end for framework? Um, I wouldn't go quite that far in that framework will definitely be supported for years and years to come. Like Windows itself, that is built on, on .NET Framework, like the, the core components. So .NET Framework will be hanging around for a long time. There's a lot of move, of talk of moving to the core, and I think generally Microsoft is going to be pushing people towards core in general. At Build, there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about Framework, though. There was a lot of talk about you know, C-sharp, where it is, um, core, where it is, the upcoming release, and the even further out releases. Sure. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of... Um, core is clearly where Microsoft's focus is. Um, that's where they can put all the effort in. I'm sure that's where all the developers enjoy working as well as on core. Uh, and they are clearly making efforts to make these traditional .NET framework apps like the UWP apps and uh, even uh, web form, uh, sorry, WinForms work on .NET Core. They'll stay as Windows, but uh, I think focusing on on trying to move to .NET Core, if you can, is worth it. Not necessarily rewriting apps that are already working, but greenfield things, I should think you should definitely be considering .NET Core. So we're going to talk for the rest of the podcast about the uh, the major differences or the things that are new, let's say, from um, in Core that we're not necessarily in Framework. Um, I suppose the primary thing for a lot of people would be that it's cross-platform. Yeah, so there's there's a, a key distinction to make as well in that ASP.NET Core can run on both .NET Core and .NET Framework. Um, .NET Core is cross-platform. .NET Framework is obviously Windows, but you can still uh, build ASP.NET Core apps that run on either. Yeah, I've actually I've ended up with that problem because we had some um, third-party dependencies. I think it was something like a, an IBM MQ library. So I wanted to have a, a newer uh, .NET Core Web API, but it wouldn't be compatible because of the external dependency. So then I built my Web API as a core API, but running on framework. It does get confusing, though. <laughs> um, is this is the .NET Core Web API this, that runs on core the same as the .NET Core Web API that runs on framework? So it is it is the same APIs. All of the um, well, pretty much all of the APIs are .NET standard libraries rather than .NET Core libraries. So they they should run the same. The trouble is your underlying um, framework is different. Some so there's there's some things in .NET Framework which just don't exist in .NET Core, for example. So um, it depends how the libraries use it. Generally speaking, I would if you can get away with using .NET Core. I think it's just it's far simpler to just use .NET Core rather than trying to have that sort of hybrid approach. So you mentioned standard and standard libraries. Can you explain what that is? So .NET Standard is an attempt to basically sort of create an interface across all of the uh, various .NET platforms. So you've got um, you've got the full .NET framework, you've got .NET Core, but you've got other platforms like uh, like Xamarin, uh, like UWP, which are all sort of flavors of .NET. And each of these has different APIs available. So some like it's a silly example, but some might have string.join, some might not. Um, so when you write your library, you need to know uh, what you're targeting as to whether they'll have these APIs or not. So .NET Standard is an attempt to create an interface across all of these, which says when 
when the platform implements a particular version of the standard, say 1.1, you will have these APIs available to call. So you will have string.path to call. So we, we've kind of skipped over a tiny bit about the cross-platformness. So when we're saying .NET Core can run cross-platform, we're talking Linux, Windows, Mac, Mono, uh, mobile phones, anything else? Uh, so they've they've recently got it running on Raspberry Pis. Um, there's basically efforts to port it pretty much everywhere. Uh, I believe, I think Samsung's Tizen platform can run .NET Core apps now as well. Um, yeah, they're, they're basically trying to get it everywhere. Um, this was something I I've been working on Core for quite some time, but it was only about two months ago that I installed um, Visual Studio Code on my Linux computer at home, and. Again, even though I know it would work, or I knew it would work, uh, I was still very impressed when I pressed F5 to spin up a simple web API on port 5000 and then another one on port 5005 and have them run fully as expected in little Kestrel windows and send messages back and forth. And then, of course, I could take that code and run it on Windows. But you know, even for me, who's been at this for years and knew it would work, it was still a very impressive thing to see. I completely agree. I had exactly the same thing. I was uh, I was on a Mac at the time when I started doing this, and it was uh, I was used to you know developing in a VM and everything being a bit slow because of the way it is. But yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. All right, so let's uh, let's leave aside the the cross platformness and the standardness for a moment, and let's have a little chat about some of the components that are now different. So I've ended up on your blog a few times when uh, trying to figure out configuration issues. They've significantly changed the configuration system. So can you describe that, please? Sure. So uh, previously, configuration was based um, pretty much exclusively on uh, the XML config files. Uh, You'd load from a static configuration manager. um, In the previous ASP.NET, you'd load from a static configuration manager as key value pairs. Um, In ASP.NET Core, you can basically receive configuration from a huge number of different places. You could still load it from XML files. You could load it from JSON files. You could load it from environment variables. You can call external services. So you could uh, get uh, configuration from Azure Key Vault, for example. And it basically combines all of those various different configuration layers um, into a single dictionary of objects. For people who haven't played with .NET Core, things are significantly different now than with ASP.NET Core than they were with framework applications. We're back to the days of a program.cs with a main method, which kicks off the whole thing. Is that where you would put your configuration? Because that's kind of the the, the entry point for your app. Yeah, exactly. So the the program main, like core apps are, as you say, basically just console apps. You um, create a web host builder in your program main, and then you call .run on it. And uh, at that point, it starts just listening to connections. So, yeah, all your configuration goes in your program.cs in this web host builder. Um, as part of the web host builder, you can configure your apps configuration as well as things like what URLs you're listening, uh, the Kestrel web server is listening to. Um, Where can it get its configuration source from? So, you know, we're used to, again, app settings or maybe a database or something like that. Do we, are the same options still available? Yeah, there's there's even more options if anything because it's uh, very simple for to create a new provider. Um, 
So configuration, you, you have a, config, a configuration builder object, which you add configuration providers to, and you can have JSON configuration providers in which you just provide a path to uh, load a JSON file. You could have XML providers. You could have database providers. Um, you can create any sort of configuration object. Um, so you could load from, as I say, from Azure Key Vault to load true secrets, for example. Um, and then within the web host builder, that would call build on the configuration builder, which will convert all those into a dictionary of objects, a dictionary of key value pairs. But that dictionary is then available throughout your application, isn't it, without um, any further references back to program? Exactly, yeah. So that uses dependency injection to inject uh, yeah, the iConfiguration object everywhere. Um, although that is not necessarily the recommended approach to take. The, uh, in ASP.NET Core, they recommend you use strongly typed settings, which you can bind to that configuration. So what would that look like? If it, let's, say I've got, um, let's say I've got a web API app and I've got my person controller. What's your recommendation for getting configuration into that? that I, let's say I needed to look up something for whatever reason. Okay, so say you, yeah, so you've got an external service which needs a host URL and an API key. You would create a just a simple Poco object that has those two properties on it, so host URL property and an API key uh, property, and you would in, inject an instance of that into the constructor of the person controller. So at runtime, you uh, you just receive the object with the, the properties bound. You also need to set up the configuration binding itself. So in your startup class, which is where you configure a lot of your application dependencies, um, you would call uh, services.configure and you'd pass in your uh, service settings object and you would pass in the configuration which you've loaded from potentially from JSON from your secrets uh, service and it would bind very similar to the way the action uh, parameters are bound in MVC, it would bind the uh, dictionary values to your settings object. So then you would create your POCO for every, let's say, collection of configuration items that you want. Exactly. That way it's all it's all split up. You're not trying to use magic keys everywhere and you only get in the settings for the actual uh, settings that you need. Gotcha. So you've mentioned dependency injection there a couple of times, and dependency injection now is um, built into .NET Core. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, as you say, dependency injection was always possible in ASP.NET, the previous version, but it was a bit hard work to set up, and it wasn't, wasn't a first-class citizen. Uh, in ASP.NET Core, Dependency injection is used throughout the framework itself, as well as in your application code. So uh, the actual framework uses this built-in container. Uh, it's a very, very simple dependency injection container. It doesn't have a lot of features, but um, it does everything they need. And you can use that directly in your own uh, application code. So whenever you need to have dependencies, you can just uh, accept an instance in the constructor of your object and uh, it'll be automatically injected for you. And you can do the usual things like, um, I, I, it's not request scoped anymore, it's called something else, is it? Cause you've got, it's called... Sorry, please tell me. Sorry, it's called scoped. Just scoped, okay, because I think I, I'm, I think it was an inject used to call it request scoped, and there's transient scoped, singleton, 
Um, it has all those things, but like you said, it is a relatively, it's a, a simpler DI than, let's say, a castle or an autofac. And there are a few things it doesn't have, like property injection. But I know some people like Mark Seaman sometimes say that uh, property injection is an anti-pattern. But um, has um, can you use other dependency injection frameworks if you want to do with Core? Yeah, so the as as you say, it's it's a very very simple. They only have the con- those three lifestyles as a as a concept, um, and it does doesn't have anything. You have to automatically register. You have to explicitly register every class that you want to be able available for dependency injection in the container. So no, it doesn't have any of the auto registering things like like those do. So if you want those features, yes, you have to use an external container, and but you can plug those in. Um, the majority of those containers have adapters to work with ASP.NET Core. Some of them, I, I believe Castle is still uh, trying to, to work on that, where there's fundamental in, incompatibilities with the way they treat dependencies and the way ASP.NET Core does. So they're working on that at the moment. So one of the things I've noticed that I've needed from time to time but is absent with the DI is a named um, instance, if that's the right term, where I might want to have two instances of a HTTP client that could be injected into given controllers, that's not possible. But I know that with the upcoming uh, release of Tomb 1, HTTP Client Factory is going to solve that for us. Yeah, as you say, in that specific instance, HTTP Client will uh, will solve that for you. There's, I don't believe there's a more a, a general solution to that other than uh, creating essentially a factory object and using that. To... A completely new concept as well with .NET Core is a thing called middleware. What's that about? So middleware replaces the sort of concept of HTTP modules and HTTP handlers from ASP.NET. You can think of middleware as as little pipes. So a request comes into a piece of middleware. It does something with that request and passes it on to the next piece of middleware. So in that way, you create a pipeline. And at some point, a piece of middleware will generate a response and it will start sending the response back down through the middleware again. So then each middleware gets a chance to see the response. And so you can use middleware for generating, just for generating simple responses, or you can use it for doing cross-cutting concerns. So you might have middleware that um, does logging, for example, or you could have middleware um, that returns static files like images and JavaScript. So one thing I'm used to using, and, and this is this is not uh, middleware, but back in the days of um, framework where the on action executed, the on action executing, is that related to middleware or is that something different? That's similar. So that, that's uh, filters in, in MVC. That concept still exists. And so the MVC uh, still has the filter pipeline, but it's it's a similar concept, but it applies to your whole application. So your your middleware makes fundamentally is your application. But in, I think one of the differences as well is that with a filter, I would still pass my request almost always true to my, let's say, controller and action method. Um, whereas with middleware, I could intercept something and maybe return a response early. Is that fair? Yeah, that's that's completely fair. I mean, some of the filters you can do a, do a similar thing with short circuiting, but um, yeah, very much middleware. It tends to it tends to do one of one of a few things. Like it either just completely ignores the request and just passes it on to the next middleware in the pipeline. It does something with the request, so it might add some headers. It might uh, log you in, for example. It might authenticate. 
And so for later requests, you'll see the request has been authenticated. Um, or it just generates a response and uh, just short circuits the entire rest of the pipeline. So the static file middleware, for example, if it receives a request for an image, it will just return that image and the rest of the pipeline will never see the request. So speaking of authentication and authorization, have things changed in uh, ASP.NET Core from framework? Yeah, significantly. There's uh, the whole, even from ASP.NET Core 1 to 2, things have changed significantly in the way they're designed. Um, they're very much separate now. Like authentication is a completely distinct uh, approach to authorization, which was sometimes not the case uh, in in some aspects. Um, you can authenticate using uh, bearer tokens. You can, uh, any other approach you see fit, and then you can apply authorization policies to um, your MVC actions, for example, to control who can actually execute them. What do you mean by an authorization policy? So an authorization policy controls um, basically whether an authenticated user is allowed to execute an action, or it may be that you have to be authenticated to execute an action. You can build these policies in a way that's independent of the underlying code. So you could check that simple things like check whether a user is authenticated. You can check whether a user has specific claims. So you can check whether they are an administrator, for example. Or you could do things like check that they have the required date of birth. Um, but you can configure all this separate from the actual code that um, requires the policy. And then can you store that stuff in the database or in some other exter- uh, something external to your application? Exactly. Yeah, that gives you that, that possibility there. Um, there's a, a project called Policy Server, which uh, Brock Allen and, uh, is working on. Um, which Brock, uh, Brock Allen, he's the guy behind uh, Identity Server himself and Dominic. Exactly. Yeah, they, they have this, uh, which does exactly that. It stores the uh, policies as a external service, which you can then interrogate to decide whether uh, a particular user is allowed to uh, execute an action. How is this, would you say this is easier than what we used to have uh, prior to Core? Uh, it can be. I mean, it's it's certainly easier to maintain is the, the key. Like it may be slightly harder to get started, but in the simplest case, you can just decorate your MVC uh, actions with the authorized attribute pretty much exactly as you did before. It's just slightly better architected under the hood. Let's talk a little bit about hosting because that is uh, different as well. Um, so has Kestrel, Kestrel's been around for a while, but is that now the primary hosting um, service for, for Core? Yeah, so Kestrel is the the web server you'll almost certainly be using uh, if you're running an ASP.NET Core. Uh, in terms of, so ASP.NET Core apps are just console apps. They just run as a console app and then Kestrel listens for uh, connections. Uh, that's that's quite different to the way it used to work with ASP.NET, where it was IIS was the uh, hoster hosted the application, and it would call into your application to to, to handle requests. So there's there's a change in dynamic there. Um, but in order to run cross platform, obviously we had to completely remove that the web host from the underlying platform. And I presume Kestrel is multi-threaded, can res- respond to multiple requests at the same time, no problem there? 
yeah, Kestrel is like ridiculous performance. They've uh, recently done some benchmarks, and it, I can't remember how many it's millions. I think it's like seven million requests a second it can handle, and there's there's no problems with that yet. <laughs> and then you can also you can bind it to any port you want or to any uh, any host name that your server has as well. I think, can't you? Yeah, so I believe in two point one. There's the server name indication i believe it's called sni uh which allows you to bind uh to multiple hosts on a single port um prior to that you had you could bind to multiple ports directly but you couldn't bind to you couldn't have a single port with multiple hosts uh, yeah that TLS. was i remember that that certainly that it wasn't that was the way up until very recently so that's changing you say with 2.1 i believe 2.1 it's introduced yeah i can't remember for certain but i believe so but one of the things you often see when talking about Kestrel is don't expose Kestrel to the outside world. Why? What's the story there? So in 2.0, they've actually said that you can expose Kestrel to the outside world. You just probably shouldn't. Yeah, you didn't uh, sound very confident there. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's generally not considered a good idea. Um, and the, the simple reason is that the Internet's a scary place and people are going to try and break your stuff. Um, the Kestrel is it's very well tested, but it's obviously a lot newer than something like IIS is or Nginx. Um, so the the recommendation is to put it behind a reverse proxy like like IIS or Nginx, and then they forward the requests on to the Kestrel uh, web server. But you think that the um, if they are beginning to encourage people to use it, let's say uh, at the edge of their networks. Do you see the future being Kestrel as the the only thing you'll need and reverse proxies won't be necessary? Probably not. No, I think it'll continue to to be um, as as it is, basically with a reverse proxy. Especially as you get as you move to architectures like Kubernetes and uh, microservice architectures, you'll have Kestrel being exposed as the service directly. But then you'll most likely have some sort of API gateway or reverse proxy in front of that. Um, proxying requests to the service, yeah. Andrew, any final notes before we wrap up for the evening? No, I think that covers uh, an introduction to it anyway. Do you have a a blog that we can follow you on? I do, yes. So uh, andrewlock.net. I blog there every week, normally on a Tuesday. Uh, (laughs) So yeah. Tuesday Tuesday in New Zealand or Tuesday in the UK? Uh, Tuesday in the UK. (laughs) And then uh, Twitter, how would we find you? So I'm andrewlock.net on there as well. All right, I'll put links into both of those on the uh, on the show notes and a link to your book and anything else. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 73 with Bill Wagner, where we talk about the Microsoft Documentation Service, or episode 96, where I spoke with Steve Gordon about the HTTP client factory in .NET Core 2.1.
The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Super Sloppy Space Junk by Milkshake Daddy from the album Aquatic Ape Hypothesis. <laughs> 